BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we're super excited to have Jay Jordan with us. He's the Executive Director of Californians for Safety and Justice. They advocate for a less punitive criminal justice system. That's right. And Jay has also had his own experience with incarceration. So in addition to his life story and the politics of criminal justice, we're going to talk to him about the COVID-19 outbreak in state prisons and the governor's new plan to release thousands of inmates. But first, uh, Scott, unfortunately, um, you know, the prisons are in a very bad situation and we do want to talk about that. But Things are not just bad inside at this point. Um, We have seen positive tests continue to rise in California, and Governor Gavin Newsom on Monday moved to shut down um, sectors of the economy like inside dining and and a lot of other indoor sort of entertainment activity. Um, Yeah, you know, it's 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 not good. It it seemed (laughs) like we flattened the curve, and the the curve sort of fought back. I mean, it's uh, it's just crazy. You know, if you think back to like you know May, early June, California was. Sort of, you know, we thought of ourselves as kind of a success story. You know, we weren't New York. You know, we had successfully shut down. But now, as you say, we've got rising number of cases, hospitalizations. And, you know, the governor likes to talk about his dimmer switch. But, you know, in some ways, it seems like more of a strobe light, you know, kind of going flashing on and off. And depending on which county you're on or in, there's different rules. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a couple of things here. Clearly, the governor was under enormous political pressure a few months ago as we did see rates really start. It seemed to plateau to reopen at least some, you know, sectors in some counties. And I mean, I think the interesting thing this week, Scott, is that this what's really come to a head now is this in conjunction with what we're all looking forward to as parents, which is the start of the school year in a month or two, depending on where your district is. And I think a lot of anger among parents that we moved to reopen bars and restaurants when we didn't even have a plan for schools yet. Yeah, no, it's true. And on the other hand, I mean, it's easy to say, yeah, you know, Newsom wanted to be popular and he didn't want to go against, you know, uh, certain sectors, the bars and the restaurants. I'm sure he has a lot of buddies that are restaurant and bar owners. But if you look across the country, I mean, more than half of the states are seeing spiking numbers of cases and states have handled this in all different kinds of ways. Yeah. And I mean, it's an interesting balance if I think about trying to put myself in the governor's shoes. I mean, we do have a huge state here, 58 counties, almost 40 million people of a really wide variance of needs when it comes to what life looks like in Tulare County versus San Francisco. But by the same token, we expect state leadership. Um, we expect federal leadership too. Yeah. We're not even getting to that, which is <laughs> a big part of this problem because totally. the governor can't print money. We're in a recession. They're grappling with a the state budget shortfall. They have to legally balance the budget. 
Um, so if we could get federal help, that would actually solve some of these things. But I do think that there's a real desire, um, especially around the school issue, for the governor to step in and make some statewide decisions around how is it safe? When is it safe? What can we do? Because the truth is school districts do not have the resources. And I think, unfortunately, what's happening is this, you know, as, as often happens in our political system where you see people kind of getting pitted against each other when none of them are really at fault here. Teachers saying we don't want to go back because we're worried about our safety and parents saying, but that's not fair. We need to work, too. And um, I, I think it does really cry out for a statewide plan, you know, similar to some of the metrics maybe we saw around the um, private sector. Although, to be fair, people are confused by those, too. They are. And, you know, know, people say, well, we're going to let the science and the data, you know, lead our decisions. But the the fact is, on this stuff with kids, the science and the data are unclear. You know, kids Mm -hmm. do seem to be less susceptible to getting it uh, and spreading it. But, you know, you've got families, you've got teachers, you know, who are older. Maybe some of them are more susceptible. And so... It's inevitable that politics, I mean, it was crazy. You've got Orange County saying, yes, we're going to have school in person, no masks, no social distancing. And then north and south, you got L.A. and San Diego saying, no, we're going to do online learning, distance learning. I mean, it's but but what is there is no one simple right answer. I mean, even Anthony Fauci seems to be going back and forth, (laughs) telling it, you know, saying, yes, we should try to open schools, but it's a local decision. Yeah. And I think uh, my final thought would be just this, you know, that we do have a a situation right now where, as I said, you know, the state budget has been cut. Um, There's going to be deeper cuts in the fall if the feds don't come up with money. I think one interesting thing nationally is we are seeing, I think, in some red states, a changing of tone from governors um, of, you know, asking for help, asking for resources. And you do wonder if that might actually reach the ears of, of President Trump and Senate Majority Leader McConnell, who have been very reticent to reopen another COVID recovery package. Um, but it just doesn't seem like anyone's going to be in a good situation because, you know, you can go ahead and open up schools. But if Every teacher, you know, if a teacher gets a cold and there are no substitute teachers, are we just going to be back here again in a couple yeah. weeks? Well, it's the know? same with businesses. You know, you can open the businesses, but if people don't feel safe, you know, they're not going to come out and go shopping. It's, totally. uh, it's tough. It's very, it's a tough spot. It is. And um, another tough spot is the prison. So we are going to take a short break. And when we return, we will jump into that issue with Jay Jordan. He is executive director of the Criminal Justice Reform Group, Californians for Safety and Justice. They've actually pushed some of the most sweeping criminal justice changes in the state over the past decade. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 
And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we are thrilled to welcome Jay Jordan to the show, Executive Director of Californians for Safety and Justice. Jay Jordan, welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you for having me. So, um, you know, we mentioned a little bit about your organization, and I want to talk about CSJ in a bit, but you have a really interesting life story. I know you grew up in Stockton. Can we kind of start there? What was your childhood like, and uh, what was your family like? Uh, so, um, I am the son of a country preacher from Oak Muggy, Oklahoma <laughs> and, a, and a city girl from Watts. And so depending <laughs> on who you ask my mom or my dad, how they met the story switches. My dad says that, you know, um, this girl used to flag his car down every day coming from school. So one day he finally, you know, picked her up and my mom would say that, uh, this creepy guy used to follow her. To <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I grew up in Stockton, uh, I'm the last of eight. Uh, so I'm the baby, I'm spoiled and I get what I want (laughs) all the time, you know, uh, and you know, uh, Stockton was unique, uh, unique in the sense that, you know, we have uh, extreme poverty, uh, but we also have extreme wealth. Um, um, most folks may not know this, but, um, Alex Spanos, uh, the late Alex Spanos, um, the owner of the San Diego Chargers. Uh, 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 um, has a house in Stockton, lived in Stockton, um, is from Stockton. So, um, you know, we have extreme wealth, and but extreme poverty. And so, you know, the duality of that really shaped my upbringing in the sense that, you know, when I was a young kid, we lived um, on the other side of the tracks, uh, the proverbial other side of the tracks. Um, but as I got older, uh, my mom and dad worked really, really hard. And my dad drove trucks and, and, and my mom, you know, went to school. And when she got her masters they switched and then my dad got his masters he started a church and we moved you know to uh, uh middle class uh, stockton and growing up middle class stockton it was it was interesting to say the least i was the only black kid on my on my block and so uh-huh. you know I, I experienced you know that covert uh kind of implicit bias where i would be the only kid not um uh, invited into the into people's homes after a game of two-hand touch right mm-hmm. and so it was it, it was it was a slight um, kind of um, um, implicit bias that I experienced, but you know, I had a great upbringing. Um, I just um, want to ask you because I know you grew up with or knew Michael Tubbs, who is now the mayor. Got got elected at the age of twenty-seven, the mayor of Stockton. I, it, where in that story you just told did you meet him? Yeah, so Tubbs and I didn't meet until years later, um, after I had uh, a run-in with the law. So hmm. um, 10 months after my 18th birthday, my dad says that at the age of 15, um, I was abducted by the body snatchers and, you know, my brain, my brain went all crazy. And, you know, um, um, 10 months after my 18th birthday, uh, I was um, convicted of robbery and I served eight, um, seven and a half years um, in prison. So um, can I ask, though, like how I, mean, I, I think it probably wasn't body snatchers. I mean, did you just fall in with with the wrong crowd? Did you feel like did something happen? Like, how did that? kind of supportive family go, you know, to something where you're in the criminal justice system. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, it was a, a, around age 15, um, I just felt out of place, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I felt um, that the neighborhood I grew up in just wasn't, it wasn't, you know, me, right? Um, I mean, I lived next door to the city manager at the time. Um, right. And so that, that shows you the type of neighborhood it was in. And it was just rejection after rejection. So I started to, you know, hang out with folks that looked like me and, and spoke like me. And that led to, um, you know, um, uh, activities that 
uh, you know, led me down a path of, of joining gangs and, and, and using drugs. And, um, you know, um, age of 18, it, it, it all came to a head. When you say rejection after rejection, like what are you referring to? You mentioned like not being invited in, you know, with all your other friends to the kids' homes and stuff. Like what? What else? Yes, yeah, so, I mean it was it was that right. You know, when you are a young black kid growing up in, um, you know, North Stockton in, in a white neighborhood, um, you're just trying to figure out where you fit in, right? And I didn't fit in over there at all. Right. You know, I, it wasn't a comfortable situation for me. And so I would, you know, every day hang out um, in the hood, you know, mm -hmm. and those were my friends. Those were the people that, although they didn't live around me, um, you know, you know, I went to school with them and they were close to me. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, it, it was it, it was interesting because I remember the incident in seventh grade where um, I walked to school with some of the kids that lived in the same neighborhood as me. And, um, you know, we walked to school and then when uh, I saw my childhood friends, you know, the black kids went over there, spoke with them. Then after school, there was some issues happening, a fight happened. And the kids that lived in my neighborhood uh, were like, hey, Jay, let's go. Jaron, let's go. Right. And I'm like, nah, man, this is, you know, and it, it, it was in that moment I realized that you know, my life is going to take a turn. Right. Like you know, while some folks would say, look at that and say, well, you know, it was a choice. Yeah, it was a choice. You know, the choice of being accepted and, and feeling comfortable in my own skin and being around people that accepted me for who I was. So you go to prison at age 19. And I'm just curious, like you, you are now working, you know, on the outside to try to reform the system really from, you know, soup to nuts in the sense of jury trials and, and prosecutors and policies and laws, but also obviously our reform system. I mean, what did you see firsthand that really struck you as you went through that process? And I mean, talk a little bit about going from a pretty, sounds like supportive family to, to state prison, which is not a good place to be. Yeah, I, I remember when my, uh, I got arrested um, and my nephew was right there. He was two at the time. And mm -hmm. I just felt like it was, it was, you know, it was bad. And he, my parents found out and they came to see me and were like, what happened? And I tried to explain to them like, hey, you know, this is, you know, I was drunk and, you know, all of this. They're like, you messed up, you know, um, like you're going to go to prison for this. And I'm like, I think I am. Right. And so they hired an attorney and it was it was apparent from the beginning that um, I was going right. You know, um, it wasn't like I didn't own up. I was like, hey, you know, this is something I did. I messed up, you know, um, give me the best deal I could. Right. And that's when I learned about mm -hmm. plea deals mm -hmm. and how they work. Um, I didn't realize that, you know, that, you know, laws were like deals were brokered between um, public defenders and um, and paid attorneys and district attorneys. I thought there was like in the penal code, you do a robber, you get six years. That's not how it works, mm -hmm. right? It's it's like, hey, you know, this kid comes from a good family. Um, you know, his dad is lobbying the DA's office. Um, he has a good attorney, you know, um, but, uh, you know, he has affiliations with this gang. So we want to make an mm -hmm. example out of him. So I was I, I, I sat there and fought my case for 10 months hmm. uh, and um, they offered at, at the end of it, they offered me, which is strange to me still today. I don't know how they you know did it, but they offered me. They came to me and said, hey, you know, Mr. Jordan, um, we'll either give you uh, 13 years with one strike 
are seven years with two strikes. Wow. And I, and I, I was perplexed at that. I did not really understand it at the time. Yeah. So you had just gone through high school and then you get to prison and that's a whole other kind of education. Uh, what did you learn behind bars about yourself, about the system, about the world? Yeah, I was, I was going into it thinking that, you know, I was going to um, be introduced to some really crazy people, right? I'm like, okay, this is prison. I've seen this on TV, even though I thought that I was, I was a big bad wolf. Like I was a, you know, 18 year old, you know, 170 pound kid, 160 pound kid going into a level three prison in Solano. Um, and uh, I was surprised. I was surprised because of the acceptance it wasn't, you know, people weren't catcalling or, you know, uh, you know, trying to intimidate. You know, they were like, "Hey, where are you from? North from Stockton? Oh, you're over there." And it was, it was like, "Hey, you know, um, oh, I know who's your family, right?" So it was, it was community in a way that I haven't experienced. I didn't experience, you know, um, like, you know, di didn't really get that while I was outside, right? It was in a controlled environment. And you had all these adults saying that we're going to take, like, we got you, right? Like, oh, don't worry about it. We got you, right? And so, you know, in 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 that time, you know, I went to prison. Um, um, I got locked up in 2004, made it to prison in 2005. And at that time, it was a lot going on in California prisons. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this was the time where... Like the height it, of the crowding, yeah. Yeah, it was the height of the crowding. I mean, I was I was put into a gym. It was called H dorm in Solano. And it was about, you know, 220, 240 guys in there, triple bunked. You know, they gave me a middle rack and I'm like, okay, this is weird. They had the toilets lined up in the back of a gym. It was no partitions. The, the shower was open. And when I, when I, when I went that day, um, the toilets had the septic tank had broken. Yeah. And so, you know, they had the gym airing out. And so you can, you, you can imagine all the smells that were coming out. And I'm like, I'm going in there, really? Mm. So I walked in there and the stench was just really, really, really bad. Um, and I stayed in Solano for three, three and a half years. Um, and I got into some trouble. There was a big riot that happened. Mm. Um, I got, you know, and in prison, you get in riots. That's what happened, right? Like if, you know, if it happens, there isn't any, you're in there. yeah, there, yeah. yeah, it's it's like if you're black and, you know, the blacks and whites are rioting and it's, it's a, you know, you know, you are you are in a riot, right? And so, big riot happened, and I ended up um, going to the shoe for um, I got sentenced to two years in solitary confinement. Oh my wow. god! And that's when thing and that's when things changed for me a lot. How so? Yeah. Well, I had you this had a lot guy. Of time to think. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I had this guy next door to me, um, and he when I first got there, I mean, look, I took the seven years with two strikes, obviously, right? So I'm like, hey. You know, I got two strikes. It, it, am I getting struck out here? They didn't tell me. Um, and they're like, hey, if the DA decides to file, then, you know, you have to go to court. And so I'm stressed out. I get to Tehachapi Shoe, which, you know, I'm from Stockton. I was serving time in Solano, which is, you know, not too far from Stockton. Now, and so my parents were able to come see me. My sister, my girlfriend at the time were able to come see me. They transferred me to Tehachapi, which is, you know, uh, 250 miles from my home and it's like 50 miles east of Bakersfield in the Tehachapi Mountains. No one was coming to see me and I'm in a hole in a box, right? And so when I get there, this guy's banging on my door. I mean, banging on my wall, my neighbor is, and I'm stressed out. And finally, after like an hour of banging, he's, you know, I'm, 
he yells through the um I yell through the I, I yell through the vents. You know, what do you want? And this guy's like, Who are you? So I tell him, you know, I'm from I'm Jay, blah, 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 from Stockton. <laughs> and, he, and he says, That's what you are. Ask who you are. Then he starts mm. laughing and reciting my name over and over and over and over. And I thought he was crazy, but you know, he had a point. And I begin to think about his question, like, who am I? Right? Mm. Like who who am I? And, and it took me all the way back to when I was a kid. And I was like, mm. you know, what defined who I am as a person um, was society. And I really never took a chance to like define it for myself. Wow. And you know, over the next two years, I, I went through a, an experience and a process where defining who I wanted to be in the world. If you are just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown on KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. We are talking with Jay Jordan. He is now executive director of the Criminal Justice Reform Group, Californians for Safety and Justice. So, Jay, um, because we only have about 10 minutes left, I am, let's talk about who you became. I mean, you get out of prison, um, I imagine, in your late 20s, and you went back to Stockton, right, and started really trying to put into practice some of the things that you you learned in, in prison in terms of wanting to make a difference. Yeah, I mean, the the I'll give you the the the. the... 30 second kind of like highlight reel. <laughs> Take 45. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. we got to well, get to all the policy stuff you're working Right, on, right, yeah. exactly. So yeah. the highlight reel is get out in 2012, um, had all these plans to be a real estate agent, sell insurance. None of that could happen because I had a felony. Couldn't sell real estate, couldn't sell used cars, couldn't sell insurance, couldn't become a barber because of my felony. Um, got a job working in a freezer. Um, that didn't work. Um, started selling vending machines, made some money. Um, at the same time, met Michael Tubbs, met uh, Chief Jones, uh, met uh, Tory Berber, the DA in, in, in San Joaquin. Um, and we all like happened to descend on Stockton at the same time, mm-hmm. right? Like, so it was a convergence, like a renaissance in Stockton that was happening in 2012. And I said, you know what? I want to do community work. And so I started a, 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 a program called First 50. Uh, because I just couldn't find a job and, you know, I I was selling vending machines and I didn't want my legacy to be, you know, Cheetos and Sprite. Right. And so um, I had, I had to support from everybody. I mean, I had to support from, you know, everyone from the state Senator all the way down to city council. And the day before we were, we were set to launch the school board calls me and says, Hey, you have a felony. We didn't know you can't Mm -hmm. do this program. And I was devastated. And so I, um, I called all the parents and the students that night before and I'm like, Hey, we can't do it of my felony and the parents knew and they were like who cares we're doing it anyway go to your dad's church and let's do it at your dad's church so we did it that lasted 18 months um all the kids are about between 35 to 70 kids any given time all of them graduated high school um all of them are off in college or you know with careers uh, in 2014 we were named the red cross hero of the year um we got recognized over um, two dozen times because of that great work in stockton um, and then in 2015, uh, well, 2014, I got hired by Congressman McNerney. If you're listening, Congressman, thank you for giving me my <laughs> first start to um, to You were his uh, campaign politics. director. Weren't you a field director or something? I was his field director, and I was still on parole. And I was like, are you seriously going to hire me? I'm still on parole. He was like, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Well, we beat Tony Amador um, by, by like six points. Um, you know, Tony, if you're listening. I apologize. Um, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, sorry, not sorry. Um, And, um, you know, and then, you know, I I, I said, you know what, I I like politics and I want to make, you know, I can make individual change, but I can make structural change as well. Hmm. And I'm, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. So, you know, when all those experiences that you had and that you've described and the, the hurdles 
that are put up uh, against people who come out of prison and so on. Like it, there have been a lot of changes, some by the voters, perhaps 47, 57, some through the legislature. I mean, what do you think is you know the most important change that either has happened or or needs to happen in order to you know help future folks like you future jay jordan's getting out of prison and, or trying to stay out of prison like what what would make the biggest difference yeah so the portion of like the biggest difference that i you know i really was excited about to work on you know i was the um i did the grassroots organizing for prop 57 and um you know, being able to say, you know, for those of you, because I, I was considered a violent offender, right? Like, you know, Goofy J. Jordan is considered a violent offender. Like you wouldn't, you know, if you look at me, you're like, no way, right? But, you know, I was in there and for what 57, what Prop 57 did was it gave folks like me that was in there for a quote unquote violent felony or just a, a serious felony, a chance to rehabilitate ourselves, right? Um, I didn't have any of that in there. So my 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 goal in prison was really, really rough, right? Um, but, you know, thousands of, of people in prison are now able to go to rehabilitative courses, you know, go to anger management, get their GED, um, learn a trade. So when they get out, they're successful. I mean, yeah. so like the, 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 the biggest thing that voters want is people just not to mess up and break laws and, and folks to be safe and, you know, that portion of 40 of, of 57 that incentivized uh, uh, people going to rehabilitative programmings and earning the opportunity to go in front of a parole board uh, and maybe get early release. Um, it's not guaranteed um, that that was huge. And the second piece, I believe, uh, was Prop 47 um, with changing felonies to misdemeanors. I mean, that's huge. Yeah. I mean, Jay, I've been covering all this and you guys are now um, faced with an attempt to roll back parts of this. Prop 57 written by Jerry Brown was, as you kind of alluded to, made it a little easier to parole from state prison in certain cases, especially if you had participated in programming. 47 um, made a lot of felonies and misdemeanors. The other side is essentially, you know, using some really scary language, talking about what's a violent offender and why isn't certain things like rape of an unconscious person or trafficking a child for sex on that list. How are you guys going to talk about that? Because I think that it is it's easy to hear those things and think, wow, this. Yeah, these people should be locked up. Yeah, and it's unfortunate that they're using the Trump playbook, right, um, of not telling the truth. Um, so uh, the list that they're talking about, I mean, they're talking about rape of an unconscious person, drive-by shootings, um, um, felony child abuse, and they're telling voters that it's not considered violent. Like, it's just not true that they are not considered violent. They are violent felonies. I mean, they are felonies, and people get sentenced to long times in prison. They are not talking about the length of time or the sentencing portion of these crimes. They are saying that when they're inside, that they should not be able to earn their uh, release. And no release is automatic, right? And so they want to take away the portion, the portion of 57 that says, hey, if you go and, and, and take years and years of rehabilitative courses while you're doing your sentence, while you're serving your time, um, you, like, you know, they want to take away the ability for folks to do that. Like they want to take that process away. And we don't think that that's smart policy at all. You know, Maurice and I were talking about the situation. We alluded to the situation in prisons right now with COVID-19. And it's just uh, it, it's just so 
terrible, both for especially for the inmates, but for the staff as well, the guards and others. Uh, like half the inmates at San Quentin uh, have been are, are you know have have been tested positive. Uh, several have died. What what should the state do? What should they have done to avoid it? And and what going forward? I mean, you know, Newsom's talking about releasing another up to eight thousand inmates, which may or may not happen. Like, what do you? What's your takeaway from all this? The Supreme Court told us, <laughs> like they told us, that the Supreme Court in the Plata ruling said that you know prison, the California prisons were so overcrowded, right? It was causing a health epidemic. When I was inside prison, one person was dying a week from a preventable medical condition, right? And so because, you know, and the Supreme Court said 137.5% should be the cap. I think the Supreme Court got it wrong, right? And, and that's one of the reasons why we are, you know, in the current situation is because our prisons are packed like a can of sardines. And there's no way that people can socially distance. There's no way that the COs can socially distance from the, you know, the people inside prison. Um, there's no way that, you know, to to um, to be able to uh, uh, massively reduce the population without causing a public outcry, right? And so we are in we are in a really big pickle here. Uh, I mean, you know, the reason why so you know this is happening is because you know, thousands of letters have flooded to CDCR and the administration, you know, um, philanthropy has been, you know, beaten down the walls. Celebrities have been beaten down the walls. Advocates have been beaten down the walls in this particular moment. Uh, and so it, it's, it's, it's causing uh, folks to move, but I really want to, you know, have everyone say full stop, right? If we don't have a transformative approach to this thing, we are going to run into this problem again. Yeah. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Jay Jordan from Californians for Safety and Justice, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati, our engineer, Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Erica Aguilar, and Jonathan Blakely. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts.
to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support.